Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. Welcome. With all your high hopes and ambitions to find whatever your heart yearns for, you have made it through a full day. Congratulations. And I hope we find peace and love in whatever way that day or this day has been for you. As we have high hopes with this title of this retreat, Peace Within the Wild Heart. I I feel like an affinity and a a, a connection to even that, that first word, peace, peace that a good amount of my practice has been a quest to discover whatever that word means, a genuine sense of peace. And of course there has been some uh, pain and difficulty along the way. It's almost like a guess and check game on what genuine peace is. There's been some successes and there's been some setbacks. But through support and perseverance, any of those setbacks serve us on this quest. So whatever way this day has shown up for you, let it be in service in the discovery of genuine peace. I feel like most of us are attracted to this concept of peace that all people yearn for that sense of security and safety that comes along with peace. You know, like Megadeth has that song, Peace Sells. It's a very uh, marketable concept. And to be real, it's a very difficult thing to discover. So I'm extremely grateful that we have this practice, this community, this lineage, this dharma that has helped me find a way to enter into the doorway of peace. I love this sanga so much. If any of you have been on retreat with Wild Heart, I hope you've taken that away, that I love this group and I love all of you. And welcome to the Dharma Gang of Wild Heart Meditation Center. It was about seven years ago. I was living in in Florida. I was in grad school and I was playing in a band. I was four years sober at the time. I had a, a great community, a great sangha supporting me in Florida. Had my life pretty much set up the way I like it. Right? I lived driving distance from Disney World, and if you know me, you know I love Disney World. I was an annual pass holder with all of the uh, local residents' discounts. 
And so things were pretty nice. And just like anything, uh, all things are subject to change. And I went through a sense of change when my wife's work, her local branch in Florida, closed down and we had to find a new place to live. And I don't know if any of y'all had those experiences where you have to just leave everything, leave your family, leave your friends, leave your comforts, and, uh, and get up and move to a place that you don't know anybody. And so we were offered an opportunity to either move to Myrtle Beach, uh, New Orleans, or Nashville. And I remember thinking when those three options came up, I was like, let's go to Nashville. Because it was like, oh, I know against the stream Nashville, which is Wild Heart now. And I said, like, I know they got a strong Sangha there. And that this Dharma is very important to me. So I, I can go there. I know at least I'll go there. So we, we ended up, left everything and moved to Nashville. And when we moved there, uh, my wife had a job. I didn't have a job. So there was many days I just sat alone in this new house, new city, not knowing anybody. And um, my mind went to some pretty scary places, right? And uh, some old habits of the mind showed up with this loneliness. And luckily, uh, at night I can go to the meditation center and see some friends. And I think it's something I've learned in this practice is to show up. Just show up, right? So Wednesday night, I would just show up. Sunday night, I would just show up. They started a Thursday night. Okay, I'm just showing up. I ended up being the person that opened and closed the gate and cleaned the center after everything was done. I just wanted to show up just to be a part of something. And I remember as time went on, I ended up getting a job and I was working for, for Lowe's installing windows in the hot sun all day. And I'd spend all day lifting windows, sweating, exhausting, and then remembering, oh, I want to go to Sangha. And there was a thought that I had that kept me going. It was like, all you have to do is show up. All you have to do is sit when they say sit. All you have to do is share when they say share. Just show up and just do what needs to be done. And it was very comforting to me. So really this quality of just like, just simply showing up has been beautiful in my practice. Even like we say here that the Dharma shows up for those who show up for the Dharma. And so the very best things in my life just come from showing up. Not showing up with a master plan, not showing up and kicking ass, just simply showing up for whatever's arising. Because my introduction to Buddhism, you know, while I had my life set up at one point, my introduction to Buddhism, like many of us, comes out of deep desperation and suffering. Um, there, there was a period in my life where I felt like God was shitting on me. That through about a decade, like things like my father dying, um, things like, uh, a long-term girlfriend breaking up with me, um, getting fired from a job. Uh, I, I had three friends die due to mental illness and addiction within a three-year period. And it was just a lot to hold. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I just got curious. Okay, let's see what shows up. 
I started reading a lot about Buddhism, and I, I, I feel like those things showed up at the right time for me. When I start reading about the truth of dukkha, that 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 death, especially, is an inevitable quality of life, that all conditions are impermanent. And just normalizing that experience of a lot of the grief and loss I was having. Yeah, that Buddhism says, yeah, let's approach that directly with compassion. Let's be honest. Aren't we all approaching life with some brokenheartedness? Let's be real about that. So I kept on reading more and more about Buddhism. I feel like a lot of people like us get into Buddhism uh, through books, right? So I kept on reading a lot of books when I first got into this practice. And at the time, um, very much active in my addiction, I was working at this uh, bar in Destin, Florida. Shout out to 850 for those of you that are from that area. So um, I, I was reading book after book about Buddhism. There was one book I came across. It's called At Hell's Gate by Claude Anshin Thomas. And in this book, it tells a story of a Vietnam veteran and his conditioning towards becoming somebody that went to war at 17 years old. And then he talks about the war after the war, the trauma that comes from that. And in his process of recovery, he became a fully ordained Buddhist monk. So it's this wonderful book I was reading about the, the, the hope, these high, hope, high hopes that we can uh, fall into in this practice. That he, he went through the gates of hell and came out the other side clean. And so uh, there was one night I was just reading this book about this wonderful Vietnam veteran becoming a Buddhist monk. And I was up late reading this book. And I was like, I gotta put this book down because I gotta go to work the next morning to work the door at this tourist spot. And the very next day, I'm at the door, you know, checking people in, saying hi to them. And, um, and I, after reading all this stuff about Buddhism, it was the wildest thing. A, a group of German nuns started walking up to the bar restaurant I was working at. I was like, this is wild. Like, I was just reading about Buddhism. I've been reading about Buddhism. Now a group of nuns are coming to the, like, the place where I'm working at. This is wild. And within that group of German Buddhist nuns was the author of that book, Claude Anshin Thomas. And I was like, whoa. Like, I was reading your book last night. I couldn't put it down. And I think I kind of freaked him out <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> He was like, whoa, but still to this day we laugh about this story, right? That is like the synchronicity of just the unexpected of just showing up. He showed up, wow. And so I was like, hey man, you know, like, what can I do? And he gave me a car, gave me an address, gave me a time, said meet me here. This is when we meditate. Come meditate. Okay, not something I'm normally used to doing, but getting up at 7 a.m. to go meditate with the Buddhist monks and nuns. I was, uh, I think I was 26 years old, active in addiction, very much depressed at the time. So I go to this place and I drive up. I have no clue where, the, where we're supposed to meditate. And I, I knock on the first door I see. And just to give you an image, like I was like probably like smelling like a lot of stuff at that time, like in deep in my depression. So I wasn't bathing much at all. 
and deep in my addiction. So I probably smelled like a lot of beer and BO, right? I had this floppy blue mohawk and with a dreadlock rat tail. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I'll knock on this door. And I knock on the door and the door opens up and it's a German nun in black robes and bald head. This is a meeting of minds right here. The punk rocker with the mohawk and the rat tail and then the, the German Buddhist nun. And her name's Kenshin. We're still very close friends today. But it was like this wonderful moment where we met. And, and I was like nervous. I had no clue what to do. I brought my meditation cushion with me because I didn't know, like, it, do you have cushions? Or I bring cushions? And it was like covered in cat hair. And I was just like nervous wreck. And she was so loving. She was like, oh, no, this is the living quarters. Let me walk you over to the meditation hall. So we walk over to the meditation hall, as awkward as I was. And she was so great. And then, you know, uh, it was painful. It was so difficult sitting like this for 20 minutes at a time. It was, it was, it hurt, right? And like, the, the, the awkwardness of being around a lot of the rituals and the chanting, and, and I think I was the only lay person there. Everybody else was wearing robes. And it was a small group, very small group, nothing like we have here today. And um, it, painful, awkward experience, but after I was done, I was like, sign me up. When do I do this again? I think like, I don't know, if you're anything like me, sometimes some of this stuff just feels right. It may not feel comfortable, and it may be extremely painful, but it seems right. So it seemed right for me. And after the meditations, I would sit down with the teacher and we'd have tea. And, and this is where this concept of peace comes in, that he is a war veteran and he was also a peace advocate. But the first place he wanted to advocate peace was, was in his own heart and in your own heart. So if we want to make peace within this world, we need to start by making peace within our own hearts. And so thank you for being here as we take on this high hope of a topic, peace within the wild heart. Because as soon as we find peace within this wild heart, I really think we touch the world in a special way. And so while I go into this meditation uh, group and I'm face to face with a lot of difficulties, we sit down and observe the mind, and it's just a lot of grief in there for me. It's a lot of depression, it's a lot of self-hatred, a lot of shame, anxiety. And um, when we talk about peace, it's like, well, I can't be at peace. I'm anxious as hell right now. And when I sit down and have tea with my teacher, he would tell me these things, like, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is a way, is a way to approach your conflict. And I was like, okay, that's doable. That is doable. I can make peace with this. And he would say things like making peace with our unpeacefulness. I'm like, okay, I feel like that, that's possible. I don't know if my anxiety will go away, but maybe I can make friends with it. Maybe I can be at peace with that very thing in me that feels so unpeaceful. And so over time that I took on these practices, took official precepts, got sober, and I found a genuine sense of peace within my heart that I could trust. And it was a beautiful um, acknowledgement that my teacher says, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're doing this work, I'm seeing a change in you. And um, he actually put me through a ceremony and gave me this name, 
uh, it's angyo, which means uh, peacemaker. So my first couple years into the practice, he welcomed me in with that name angyo, peacemaker. So this, this practice of peace I hold near and dear to my heart. So thank you for doing it. But I want to go into like, how did I do it, right? How did I do it? I just showed up and I just kept on showing up. I showed up as much as possible and that's all I had to do. Showing up smelly, showing up half drunk, showing up whatever way I could, showing up anxious, just keep on showing up. That's how I did it. And that's where we can be held by our environment. As much as your mind tells you the opposite, you are not the one meditating. You're here, you showed up, you hear these instructions. Let these instructions guide you. Be held by the instructions. You showed up to a retreat. Just let the retreat hold you. So give up, give up. Let the space meditate for you. Let the Dharma show up for you. Let your community hold you accountable. Let the schedule keep you and just let it happen. You've already done the work. You've shown up. And I think what happens is when we keep on showing up, the Dharma keeps on showing up. And this is much bigger than you and I, what we are doing here. What we are doing here is just resting in the stream of this Dharma lineage that goes back 2,600 years. We're just a drop in this stream. So letting yourself just being a drop in the stream as it flows. And I, I think um, I, I love being a part of this stream. And that's why tonight I want to talk a little bit about this motivation of resting in the people that came before us in this lineage. And uh, tonight I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Deepa Ma. Any of y'all know Deepa Ma? Oh, good, we got a couple of you. See that? Yeah, Deepa Ma. So yesterday was, uh, uh, she died 33 years ago yesterday. She died September 1st, 1989. So I don't know, I felt kind of moved to talk about Deepa Ma. Um, so Deepa Ma, um, she, she was a fully enlightened person. And she reached the highest awakening possible. And sometimes when we say these like enlightenment and highest awakening possible, we're talking about people that are long gone, right? We talk about the Arahats, the Buddhas, you know? And when we read these stories, sometimes it just feels so far away for me that, oh yeah, that's somebody reached the end of suffering 2,600 years ago, but they're not like me. They don't know suffering like me. They don't know my life. And what I like about Deepa Ma is she's just a radical figure in this stream of this lineage that reached full arahatship, full awakening, full ending of suffering. And the thing about Deepa Ma is, like, normally when we think about awakening, it's reserved for monks, for men, for people that don't have jobs, people that live in monasteries. But Deepa Ma was a mother. Deepa Ma lived at a home, took care of the home, was a grandmother, and she was able to do it. And another thing about 
her that she, uh, I feel like she's the sometimes called the patron saint of lay practitioners, that she's like the representative of us. I feel like she's one of us. That Andrew sometimes calls this community the, the community of the brokenhearted. And Deepa Ma was part of that community. She did experience brokenheartedness. So I want to talk a little bit about how um, the realness of her brokenheartedness, and sometimes I, I, I uh, reflect on that, that um, this doorway into peace is entered through suffering. So yeah, I'll, I'll just contextualize her life a little bit. Let's go into history time, right? So Deepa Ma uh, was born in 1911 in Bengal, which is in Northeast India on the border of Burma. And her real name wasn't Deepa Ma, that was given to her later. Her real name is Nani Barua. She's from the Barua clan in that area. And at the time in, in, that she was born, 1911, that era, um, in Northeast India, they had a variety of spiritual practices. The, the Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, they all lived pretty much in harmony together at that time. And Nani was born into a Buddhist family. And this lay Buddhist family that she was born into, they weren't into meditation so much. Like we, we hold meditation on a pedestal in, in the West, but they were more about generosity. Her family would feed the monks, they would take in people that need homes, and they would practice this parami of dana, of generosity, and that's what they upholded. And even from a young age, Nani loved Buddhism. Um, as she was growing up, they were teaching her a lot of the, uh, the gender roles at the time for a young girl. They would teach her how to cook, and how to take care of the home, and how to clean. And she wasn't really about that. But what she would do was she would cook, but then she would go to the monastery and give whatever she cooked to the monks so she could hang out with the monks and hear the Dharma talks, maybe catch a little meditation. And then people were like, what is this young girl doing here? So she was like really uh, uh, thirsty for the Dharma. And she was also, she loved Buddhism, but she also loved education. Um, she, would, she graduated, although, at, at uh, fifth grade, until she was 11 years old. That, at the time, that's all the oldest girls could go to school at age 11. And what happened was when she graduated at age 11, she was married off at age 12 to an engineer um, Uh, Ron Johnny was his name. Ron Johnny was her, her husband. And so, as the tradition of the time that uh, she married Ron Johnny at age 12, she moved in with the in laws. So, Ron Johnny and Nani moved in with the, with the in laws, and she didn't know these in laws. And Ron Johnny, with his job, ended up within two weeks having to leave his in-laws home to move to Burma. And so Nani was left alone. She left her family that she loved. She loved her parents deeply, but she had to move in with her in-laws. 
And then the only person she knows, her husband, left her with the in-laws. And she spent two years of her life in this role of cooking and cleaning and taking care of her in-laws that she was miserable in. And then after that two years, she decided it was time to leave. So at age 14, she moved to Burma to be with her husband. And what they did was uh, they decided it was time to start a family. And when they went to start a family, um, Nani was taught a lot of things about homemaking and cooking and cleaning, but she was never taught about sex. And so Ranjani explained to uh, Nani about sex, and she experienced a lot of shame, a lot of shock even, around what sex is. But luckily, Ranjani was very gentle with her and very delicate and patient with her, that it, it took time to explain sex to her in her delicate state. And over time, Ranjani and Nani were deeply in love. And as they were trying to start a family, they discovered they, they just couldn't get pregnant. And they try and try because her family wanted her to have a, a child, wanted to have grandchildren, and especially a grandson. But it just wasn't happening. And so Ranjani's family came up with a plan to get them divorced, and so they can get rid of Nani, and Ranjani can marry again and have uh, grandchildren. But Ranjani was like, no, I love my wife. I'm not leaving her. I'm going to stay with her. And as they were going through this difficulty of not being able to have children, what, something Ranjani said that was pivotal in in her life, in Nani's life. He, he said, you know, if we're not able to have children, why don't you treat every single person as if they were your child? If you can't have children, treat every single person as if they're your child. And this is what loving kindness is. In the Metta Sutta, it says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart shall one cherish all beings. And this is the quality that she took on. And this was pivotal in her life, that this is a quality she held throughout her life. And if you, uh, we'll go into some of her teachings later on, but if we can look at her teachings, and this is the root of her teaching, which is love. And so as they kept this going, um, She was living in Burma, but her family, like her parents, were still in India. And over time, she got estranged from her parents, and she got word that her mother died. And she was heartbroken that her mother died. And she felt a lot of guilt that she wasn't with her mother when her mother died. And what happened when her mother died, she had a younger brother, and her younger brother lived with Nani and they took care of her younger brother as if it's their child. And as Nani's younger brother eventually grew up and left the home, Nani uh, decided maybe it's time for me to start taking this meditation practice seriously. I love Buddhism. I think I want to start going on retreat. And so when she was planning to go on retreat, the people around her said, no, you're a woman. Women don't go on retreat. 
stay home. So she ended up staying home. And when she stayed home, something happened. It was, she was 35 years old. She ended up becoming pregnant. And uh, everybody was very excited for Nani because they wanted her to have children. And she felt relief, like finally all the pressure of me having a child is gone. And within three months of having this child, uh, she, the, the child ended up dying. And, and, and Nani just fell into a, a, a deep depression and developed a heart condition. She felt crushed. And so this is a heart condition that developed from that literal broken heart of having a child die. Mm. And then they tried again. And within a few years, when she was 39 years old, Nani uh, became pregnant again and this time with another daughter. And this daughter uh, was named Deepa. And Deepa's still alive today. And Nani loved Deepa very much, and that's why they ended up calling her Deepa Ma. Deepa Ma meaning Deepa's mother. And this has a dual meaning. Deepa also means light. So Deepa Ma meaning mother of light that quality of metta, the mother of metta. And um, so as time went on, uh, she loved Deepa so much, and then Nani ended up getting pregnant again, and this time with a boy. And uh, they were so excited that Nani was going to have a boy, and she felt the relief now that things were getting to a normalcy. And unfortunately, that boy ended up dying at birth. And this crushed Nani even more so. And she fell into a deeper depression. And she couldn't leave the bed. Years of not being able to leave the bed. And because she couldn't leave the bed, her husband, Ranjani, ended up having to take care of the day-to-day -day stuff. He had to work, he had to take care of the house, he had to take care of his daughter Deepa. And this put a lot of stress on him. And one day, Ranjani, he came home from work and he said he wasn't feeling so well. So he went to lay down and within four hours, he ended up dying of a heart attack. And it's like these moments of like, when it rains, it pours, it's just terror. Um, that I feel like this is, you know, almost the relatable part of where this desperation comes in of experiencing death so much directly. I don't really hear much of this in the old school suttas, but this is actually reality. And at this point, within a 10-year period, her mother died, her daughter died, her son died, now her husband is dead. And in these moments of desperation, this is where she was like, okay, I've been trying to go meditate. I've been trying to go on retreat. She's like, this is it. Like, this is a do or die moment. I, I got it. I got to go do something. And so she gives up all her belongings to her neighbor and asks her neighbor to take care of Deepa, her daughter, and she leaves in this moment of desperation to find some sense of peace going off into the meditation retreat. And so she went to go meditate, 
And she, she was 40 years old at this time, her first, first meditation retreat at 40, 40 years old. And she was very skilled in meditation. She had a deep concentration, they say. And she was so skilled in concentration that um, when it came time for walking meditation, she was doing this lifting, moving, placing that we're doing. And as she's concentrating on the feet with the lifting, moving, placing, she finds herself stuck. She can't move. She can't do any more walking meditation. Something's up with her body. And she breaks concentration and looks down and sees a dog biting her, grabbing at her leg. And she has to leave the retreat. She has to go to the hospital, get shots for rabies, and the retreat center says, yeah, sorry, you can't come back. So she's like just even trying to get some relief. She can't even get relief by going to the meditation retreat. Nothing's working out. So she ends up uh, coming back home, and Deepa, her daughter, is like, no way, you're not leaving me. You're staying home. And she agreed to stay home, and she ended up practicing with a local meditation teacher there, and his name was Manindraji. I know Andrew quoted him yesterday, Manindraji. And Manindraji was a student of Mahasi Saidao in this insight tradition. And so this is how a lot of this gets passed down. And so she uh, takes those teachings home, and decides, okay, if I can't go on retreat, I'll make a retreat at home. And spends two years treating her home life like a meditation retreat, being very diligent in her meditation with the guidance of Manindraji. But then, uh, but then Manindraji informs Nani, Deepama, that the great Mahasi Saidao is coming to town to teach a retreat, and you should go on this retreat. So she's like, this is it. This is my opportunity. I'm waiting my whole life to go on retreat, and now I get to go on retreat with the great Mahasi Saidao. So she goes on this insight retreat with Mahasi Saidao, and she's very diligent, and, and tries and tries. And of course it's difficult. It's difficult seeing all the difficult uh, death and sorrow and loss that lives within her heart. But within this retreat, uh, that that mud created a beautiful lotus, that she found a deep sense of peace. And they say that she reached the first stage of enlightenment on that retreat. And from then on, her practice just developed. They say that when, after that retreat, when she went home, she, she uh, would sit six hours of meditation a day. I've been on certain retreats where we don't even sit six hours. So she put this into practice, sitting six hours a day, and then she would occasionally go on retreats and, and uh, put a lot of effort in her retreats. And then eventually she got known for becoming fully enlightened. And there's some wild stories about her. They say that when she would go on these retreats, that she would sit for three days. And I'm not talking about a three-day retreat. She would just sit there for three days, not getting up. And multiple people <laughs> said they've seen it. I don't know how she did it. If you, if you figure it out, let me know. But that's how deep she was into her practice, just sitting still for three days. I, know, I have a hard time with 20 minutes sometimes. 
So as the story of this great enlightened master starts spreading, this wild woman that's going on these meditation retreats and just sits still and doesn't move and, and that she's fully enlightened, people start knowing her. And she was living in uh, Burma at the time, but um, this was in 1967. And in 1967, in Burma, they decided that all immigrants need to leave. And, and Deepa Ma was an immigrant, so she left. And she ended up setting up shop in Calcutta in India. And while she had this name about her, people started coming to her apartment and receiving teachings at her apartment. And what, what would happen was it would be a lot of women, a lot of moms, be uh, studying with Deepa Ma and reaching these high attainments of awakening, that these like mom dharma stuff, quite wholesome. And they would go on these retreats and there would be these serious monks around and then the moms would come in and just like show them up in their loving kindness, right? <laughs> and uh, it was cool because like as they integrated this like mom dharma thing, they would, uh, monks would start showing up to her apartment and getting lessons from the mom. That, you know, they were wearing the robes and the shaved head, but the mom had the, the real dharma, and they would, these monks would ask her for instructions. So it was really cool. And so at the time that people kept on visiting her for instructions, uh, and it's the late 60s in India, who do you think shows up? The hippies start showing up. And as groups of hippies want to learn about Vipassana and mindfulness and Buddhist meditation, uh, people like Joseph Goldstein start showing up. People like Sharon Salzberg show up. People like Jack Kornfield show up. So I feel like a heartwarming quality because these people are like my teacher's teacher. So Deepa Ma is like my teacher's teacher's teacher. So this is like I'm talking about great grandma here. So like I go home to see my mom and she has these pictures of my like great uncle, my great uncle Tony, the, the bootlegger, the Italian-American bootlegger. So my mom will tell me a story about him. That's what I feel like this story is. So Deepa Ma's message um, was very loving, that she had this diligence and directness about her, but it really came from a practice of like embodying that motherly love. She would th say things like, meditation is love. And when we think about it, like, yeah, meditation is really just loving presence. When we're able to sit with whatever arises with a, a kind awareness, that's what love is to me. If I think about anything, like love is just connection. And so we sit in meditation and sit still and we develop that attitude of connection, whether we're connecting with something pleasant, whether we're connecting with something unpleasant, regardless, let's be loving and meditate with whatever arises. And I think that's where a true sense of peace arises. That peace isn't necessarily getting our way all the time. Peace is a loving act to whatever is in front of us. And so that's what meditation is. Can we have a presence with whatever's in front of us? That's what love is. So uh, she would say things like, loving is mindfulness and mindfulness is loving.
And there's all these wonderful stories about, while it's loving, but she's like extremely motivational at the same time. Like, she's like the type of mom that really believes in you. That Joseph Goldstein once said, uh, the last time I saw Deepa Ma before she died, she told me that I should sit for two days. She didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant one sitting for two days long. I had to laugh. It seemed completely impossible, but with uncom uncompromising compassion, she simply said, don't be lazy. <laughs> you can do this. You can do this. You know, don't be lazy may be a loaded it maybe it meant something different to Deepa Ma than it means to you, but this compassion, with, with deep compassion, she simply said, don't be lazy. And I think that sometimes compassion gets confused with pity. Compassion is a courage and a willingness to be in a loving presence in the company of me. Or pity is like, uh, you know, poor you, Joseph Goldstein. If it's, if it's difficult to meditate, don't do it. And that's, that's not what we're here to do. Compassion is like, yeah, you can do this. I believe in you. She would say things. Oh, there's a story about Sharon Salzberg that's kind of famous, that Sharon Salzberg um, uh, loved Deepa Ma, and she would go see Deepa Ma in, in India, and that was one of her main teachers. And when she would visit her, she'd say, okay, well, I'm kind of out of money. I need to go back to the U.S., get a job, collect money, and then I'll be right back. And on one occasion that Deepa Ma told Sharon Salisbury, she's like, no, you won't. You, no, you're not going to get a job. No, you're, you're not going to get back. I know you. You want to open up a meditation center. So what you're going to do is you're going to, when you get to the U.S., you're going to start teaching meditation. And then... Um, Sharon Salzberg's like, no way, I can never do that. And she says, I know what you really want. Anytime your mind tells you you can't, understand the mind is just stories. Like, the mind is just stories. So at any point in this retreat, your mind tells you you can't, I bet that voice has probably held you back from a lot of things in life. The way you do anything is how you do everything. So if you're in meditation, I can't, I can't be with this pain. That voice, oh, there you are, I see that story. I see that story, it probably holds you back from your dreams and your wishes. Oh, it's just a story. Not demolishing it, not avoiding it, seeing it, seeing the stories in your mind. It's just a story. So there's a few messages that I, I feel like are in this story. And one of them is this sense of, of faith that comes about this. And I, I, I know Andrew talked about it being an F word, right? And I think if we take it in a certain way, it can be that in the Buddhist we want to let go of rituals, but at the same time, we can use them. And how Deepa Ma had this deep faith in Buddhism in meditation. And through that faith, um, she, she died at uh, age 78, like I said, 33 years ago. 
And when she died, she was bowing to a Buddha statue. And in that posture, she died. I think that's really sweet. But let's be clear what she's bowing to, right? That's, that's a statue there, right? They, we call that the Buddha. That's not the Buddha. That's just a statue. That statue reminds you of your potential, your power, and what you can do. And we may lean on these, you know, pictures of all these spiritual beings on the wall here, smiling Jesus or whatever it is, but remember, that's just a picture. Let those things motivate you, that you can do this. You have to do this. And while we talk about uh, Deepa, right, that the Buddha's dying words were, be a Deepa unto yourself. Be a deepa onto yourself. Be, in, be a light onto yourself. Don't wait for some authority to do it for you. Don't wait for some spiritual being to sort it out for you. You can do this. And I think that's what this balance is. You can do this. You can let yourself be held by this room. You can let yourself be held by this practice. You can show up. And there's like sometimes some folklore around Deepama. You know, when she was living, they said, oh, she could perform miracles, she could read your mind, and yada, yada, yada. But then even as um, she was getting towards the end of her life, and people were like, oh, I'm going to miss you, Deepa Ma. And she would tell them, I'll always be with you. What does that mean? I'll always be with you. Well, does that mean, like, she will, she's literally here walking around as a ghost? On a tangent, I got a great picture of a ghost when we were doing the, uh, the haunted tour in New Orleans uh, two nights ago. It's like an orb, and it's like the outline is, I'll show you guys after the retreat. <laughs> Maybe it was Deepa Ma, right? hanging out on Bourbon Street. But, you know, to me, it's like she's here with us. Like this essence of Deepa Ma, that this lesson of, like I'm saying, that this, uh, this stream that we're resting in, she, she's here that karma. And while I may want to literally mean that, I don't think I do. There was a time, a retreat I went on, and I was having a hard time on this retreat, it was a few years ago, and I was hearing stories about Deepa Ma and her magic and how she shows up in people's meditations and stuff like that. And so as I'm in this difficult meditation, I'm like, okay, maybe I can just pray to something and it'll help me in this difficult meditation. So I prayed to the the Deva realms. Help me, Deva realms. I'm doing loving kindness to the Deva realms, like the ghost realms in Buddhism. Okay, Deva realms, help me. And they didn't help me. I was still having a hard time. And praying to God, praying to Jesus, praying to anybody, help me in this meditation. Oh, Deepa Ma. Maybe I should pray to Deepa Ma. So I do Deepa Ma, asking her for help in this difficult meditation. And in my mind, that, that thought came, be a Deepa unto yourself. <laughs> So if Deepa Ma is real, she wants you to do this, not her. <laughs> She's wandering around here somewhere spiritually. So there's these messages of the story that I get that there's a sense of spiritual urgency. And in the Buddhist tradition, we call this Samvega, that we do want to have the diligence to show up. And I think what fuels that diligence to show up is the understanding of Dukkha. That there's uh, four aspects of Samvega. The urgency of birth, the urgency of aging, the urgency of sickness, the urgency of death. 
that we, when we know the pain of life, uh, we know the pain of suffering, there's a sense of urgency to get out of it. So it, it, when we go through these heartaches, like I started with the heartache of like friends dying, being separated from my family, using that as a spiritual urgency to show up to the meditation center. When the heartache of her losing Deepamon, losing her children, the heartache of her family and friends being separate from her, that she knew, okay, I gotta go meditate. Using that as the urgency. So using your wounds to fuel the higher happiness, which is peace. There's other aspects of this too in Deepamon's story. There, there's a sense of patience too. While we want to be diligent, we also want to even that out with patience. Don't give up. Persisting through the setbacks. Like I said, that this is a guess and check game. As we go through some setbacks, use that as the guess and check, okay, to move forward with peace. There's no right or wrong way to do this or pass or fail. Don't give up, be patient, keep going. That Krishnamurti says, patience is timeless. And the, uh, the main message that I want to leave with tonight is that Deepama was fueled by loving kindness, by metta, by this motherly love. And so I'm not so sure I can be the smartest person in the room the strongest person in the room, the most attractive person in the room. But I'm going to try to be the most loving person in the room. Okay? So let's try to love. If we can do anything well, try to love well. And I think that's the message that Deepa Ma had. All right? So let's just sit for a few moments. 